called Explore God, and we're one of 307 churches in the Austin area and that are taking this journey together. And you hear me say that every week, if you're here every week, and that's because I think it's a, a critical thing for us to see ourselves as part of a larger ministry, a larger movement of what God is doing. Our prayer is that the church in this area would just unite together to present Christ to our community so that people will simply hear the good news, engage in conversations about who He is, about their lives, about important matters. I would invite you to visit the ExploreGod.com website. Have you been there? Every week we put it up at the end of that video. It says ExploreGod.com. You can go there and you can find out all kinds of information. It's stimulating discussion on there. There's articles. There's videos. But it's good for you to be aware of that because you never know when you're going to encounter a skeptic that has some questions or somebody that has heard something in the culture. Uh, that they would like to find out if it's true, get more information about. And some of the best uh, apologetics teachers are on there uh, as far as the videos and the, and the articles that are there, and I would invite you to make use of that, uh, not only during this series, but ongoing. It'll be, it'll be there from now on. Uh, today is the sixth Sunday, and uh, every Sunday we look at a different question, and you can see our question today is, is the Bible reliable? People who want to discredit God or Christianity will often turn to this issue, won't they? <laughs> and they'll say, uh, there's something wrong with the Bible. It's got all kinds of problems. It's a target for them. Because if they can discredit the Bible, then they've kind of undermined the entire Christian faith in their minds. Sometimes they say things like this. They say the Bible has gone through an evolutionary process of endless translations. It's nothing like the original. Another objection that is used is that the Bible is full of errors. We heard that in that video there. Or that it was just written by a bunch of guys. It can't be viewed as God's Word. And before we look at uh, what the Bible says about itself, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3 here in just a few moments. But I want to talk about these objections because just like everything else in this Explore God series, I've challenged you to be on a search for truth. Not uh, to pick and choose what it is that you believe, but to find out what is true and believe that. And th that couldn't be more true in our discussion today. If someone says to you that the Bible has been translated so many times that it can't be reliable because each translation takes it further away from its origin... Well, is that true? No, nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, that just exposes their... Uh, I hate to use the word ignorance, but it, it exposes their uh, lack of study, investigation of their own. They want to think of it kind of like the child's game of telephone. You ever played telephone? You sit in a circle and one person whispers to the next and you only get to hear it once and then you pass it on, you pass it on, you pass it on. And when it gets around the circle, it sounds nothing like the original message, right? But it's always funny how it turns out. And when it comes to the Bible, well, that simply has not happened. All the major English translations that we have of the Bible today were translated from original language texts, original Hebrew, original Greek. They didn't take a previous English version and just kind of nuance it to the day. They went to the oldest and most reliable texts and formed a, a team of language scholars to translate it into English. Now, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but I might do that right now. 
Because I would venture to say that as we continue to get better and better at textual criticism, the more recent translations are probably more accurate than the older translations. And more reliable. Well, another objection is that the Bible is full of errors. Therefore, it can't be reliable. For the first several centuries, how did the Bible get passed on from generation to generation? Well, it was through scribes that would copy the text over and over. And so think about it this way. What if I had a paper that I had written that, uh, let's just say it was 500 pages long. And I passed it out to every one of you here. And I says, I want you to take this document and just by hand, I just want you to rewrite it. No computers. I want you to just copy it. Well, let me ask you, with just this group here, would we have errors in the copies? Most likely. How accurate could we be? I want you to know, if you look at the historical accuracy of the manuscripts that we have of the Word of God, listen to this. The Bible contains 20,000 lines of text. And of all the early manuscripts we have, only 40 lines are in question out of 20,000 lines. And most of the variations are insignificant to the meaning of what the text is actually trying to convey. It says basically the same thing either way you would take it. And of the variations that remain, no major doctrinal issues are affected or built upon these texts. So everything that really matters to our faith, to Christianity, comes out of a well-attested ancient text and manuscript. So anybody that comes to you and says, I can't believe the Bible because it's full of errors. You could say, well, let's talk about that. Let's not just talk. Let's just not parrot back something we've heard somebody else say. Let's look at the actual facts of how the Bible has been preserved through the generations. Do you ever hear this criticism that the Bible is just written by a bunch of men? How, how, can we, how can we make it an authoritative word of God if it was just written by men? Well, I would offer this in response to that. The story of the Bible really is one of four central themes. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you think about it, isn't that the same basic sequence you see in most human dramas? <laughs> when you go to the movies, when you read a book, when you read a novel, when you go to a play, isn't it the same sequence? There's the setting of the stage, creation. There is this problem or conflict, the fall. Then there is some kind of resolution, some kind of redemption, reconciliation. And finally, there is the happily ever after ending or the restoration. Now, there, there can be a lot of subplots and twists and turns, but that's the basic outline. And in the Bible, we have this consistent story that follows these plot lines, but the kicker is this. The Bible was written by 40 different people or so over a span of 1,600 years. No collaboration between the authors, basically. How can it be that it tells one consistent story? 
Well, the only answer to that would be that a miracle has taken place. God has overseen its writing. And we're going to look more about that in just a second. You see, most people who try to discredit the Bible have really not taken a critical look at the evidence. They've heard what they they heard what the, what their friends said, or they watched television and got their theology. <laughs> Dangerous thing to do. Or they've just simply tried to avoid what's in there because they know. It's like Mark Twain said, it's not what I don't know about the Bible that scares me, it's what I do know. (laughs) That's what I have to deal with, and they don't want to deal with it. The truth is that the Bible is supernaturally put together, and it is by far the most reliable ancient text that we have today. Now to 2 Timothy 3. This is one of those scriptures that is often used when talking about the Bible, and I want to read it in in its broader context. Verses 16 and 17 are the ones that are usually uh, brought out about the inspiration of Scripture. But I want you to hear the entire context starting back in verse 12. And it says this, 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 through 17. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And I just want to point out a few things that the Bible is claiming about itself here. And and before it actually declares that all Scripture is is inspired by God and profitable in so many ways to us, Paul is setting the stage to his young protege, Timothy, by saying that this debate really goes a whole lot deeper than you think. This is not just an educational, informational process. He says that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be what? persecuted. He goes on to say that there are evil people who are being deceived and are deceiving others. In other words, this is not just an intellectual debate, but this is a spiritual war that we're involved in today. And my first point is this, there is a spiritual war going on over truth. There is a spiritual war over truth. Everybody wants to believe that their truth is the truth. Or everybody wants to believe that their truth is for them and their truth. You can have your own truth and you can have your own truth, but let me have my truth. And you see, when people are deceived and walking in that deception, they get blinded to really what is true. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with somebody where you knew that you were right and they were wrong and you were trying to convince them, but you couldn't? You're looking at me like, no, I've never done that before. Yes, you have. You know you're right. It may be a memory that you have, and you know your memory's right, and you know your spouse has got it mixed up. (laughs) Oh, wow, now I'm getting there, right? 
But there's a bias that underlies their opinion, and they're not budging. And there are people who so don't want to live under the authority of God that they won't listen to any argument with an open mind. They're actually not interested in a search for truth, but in perpetuating their own opinions and positions because it allows them in their mind some kind of lordship over their life. They can reject overwhelming evidence that challenges their position, which reveals that they're living in deception. And it's my prayer that we are always seeking truth. I hope you never get to the point where you have decided, man, I've learned it all. (laughs) Now, instead of a seeker, I am the answerer. (laughs) Everybody can come to me because I've got the truth. May we never get there. May we always be seekers of the truth and discover more about who he is. One of the arguments for the Bible is the one of fulfilled prophecy. I think it's a powerful argument. In the Old Testament, there's literally hundreds of future events that are foretold. Many of them have to do with the coming Messiah, Jesus and I find this kind of a fascinating study because, well, let's start with the crucifixion. You see, in Psalm 22, we have details about the crucifixion. And what's so amazing about that is that no one had ever heard of this form of punishment 700 years before Christ came, which is when it was written. The prophet was not writing about something with which he had been acquainted with. Sometimes I think, what would it have been like to bend that prophet? That God is describing this crucifixion in order to write it down. You want me to write what? They're going to pierce him in the hands and feet and nail him to a tree? Surely, God, that's not what you're saying. That's barbaric. But the prophet just wrote it anyway because God had spoken it. There's so many others about Jesus. They include the place of the Messiah's birth, being in Bethlehem, in Micah, his being of the lineage of King David, 2 Samuel, his being born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, his claim of deity, Isaiah 9, his rejection by his own people, Isaiah 53, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. It's that specific in Zechariah 11. His extreme suffering and disfigurement, Isaiah 52. His death on our behalf, Isaiah 53. His burial in a a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, and his resurrection, Psalm 16, verse 10. What's even more amazing, that none, not even one prophecy about Jesus was wrong or left unfulfilled. In fact, not one of the recorded prophecies in the Bible has proven to be false. And some are yet to be fulfilled, right? Right? But if the track record is that all have gone according to plan so far, can we count on the rest of them coming true also? Oh, you bet. He goes on, Paul, to his protege Timothy in verse 14 by saying this, You, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. One of the prevailing attitudes in our day today is that um, 
We just live in a culture of really, really smart people. In other words, we're smarter than the people that lived before us. We're smarter than the founding fathers. We're smarter than the economic professors of generations ago. We really have things figured out. That's why we got everything running so slick, right, today? But there is a general feeling that what was true for a past generation is not necessarily what we need to live by or to live our life around. People don't want to live by the Bible because it was written in their minds for some kind of an inferior, less technological, simple-minded culture. If you ever hear the Bible is old-fashioned, out of date, out of touch, Paul is stating here, truth is truth. It is not on an evolutionary cycle. I find this little illustration kind of interesting. There was a man named Max Jukes. He lived in the 19th century, wasn't a Christian. Married a girl that wasn't a Christian. Established a family and they could trace from this union of Max and his wife over a thousand descendants. I think a thousand twenty-six. And they have analyzed this family and they found that 300 of his descendants spent time in the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. 190, 190 of the women became prostitutes. 100 were drunkards. In the lineage of this couple, you can't find one that made a significant contribution to society. Living at the same time in the same place was a man named Jonathan Edwards. You probably hear that, heard that name before, a great preacher. He was a Christian, married a Christian. They can trace 729 of his descendants. In the Edwards family, there were 300 preachers, 65 college professors, 13 university presidents, 60 authors, 3 congressmen, of the United States and one vice president of the United States. Does that tell us anything about the power of the Word of God being lived? Not only in our lives, but passing it on unabridged, <laughs> unchanged, generation to generation to generation. Truth is truth. It's not something that evolves or becomes outdated or obsolete. My second point, truth doesn't change over time. Some may say that science is always making new discoveries. and Doesn't that mean we're getting new truth? Not at all. New discoveries are just that. What? New discoveries of things that have always been there. We just hadn't discovered them yet. It's not new truth. So as a declaration of your faith today, can I ask you this question? Is the Bible and the truth it contains good for all people of all cultures of all time periods? <laughs> Is the Bible the truth for all people of all cultures for all time periods? Yes, it is. It's because it's God's divine explanation 
that explains this life on this planet and it explains the original intention. It explains how to get back to the original intention. It explains the story of which we're all a part. And Paul says the purpose of the Bible is to draw us to faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he said in verse 15 of our scripture. He says, talking to Timothy, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We must never forget that the entire story of the Bible is centered on one central figure, Jesus. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the restorer. He is the central figure in the plot And if you read the Bible very long, you're going to encounter him. And you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with him. There's a story about two guys who were friends when they were young. Their their names were Charles and Bill. They're both young preachers. One day, though, Charles began to believe what he heard out in the culture. He heard what uh, the college professors were saying and... He began to doubt that the Bible was completely accurate. And it led him down a path where he eventually walked away from his faith, rejecting the Bible altogether. And one day he encountered his friend Bill in a public forum and he challenged him on the accuracy of the Bible and he told Bill that evolution had now been proven factual and so the whole story of creation is pure myth. And to be honest, in many ways, Bill couldn't contend with his questions. And it rocked Bill's faith. And Later that night, Bill had an experience that he later writes about, and he says this, so I went back and I got my Bible, and I went out in the moonlight, and I got on a stump, and I put the Bible on a stump. And I knelt down and I said, Oh God, I cannot prove certain things. I cannot answer some of the questions Charles is raising and some of the other people are raising. But I say here and now that I accept this book by faith as the Word of God. I accept this book by faith as the Word of God. You may have never heard of Charles Templeton who later wrote a book called Farewell to God. And you've probably heard of Billy Graham, obviously. But you know, that's not the end of the story. And I find the end of the story even more intriguing. (laughs) Because several years later, when Charles Templeton is now an old man, author Lee Strobel is writing a book, The Case for Faith. I don't know if you've read The Case for Faith. Great book. And he's doing research for his book. So he goes and visits this skeptic now, Charles Templeton. And he asks him his thoughts on Jesus. And this is in the book, The Case for Faith. And he says, and he, he's, I want you to listen to the, the discussion that he had. He asked Charles about Jesus. And here's the answer. In my view, he said, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. And that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said in his voice, 
as his voice began to crack. He said, I miss him. And tears filled his eyes and he turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. And his shoulders bobbed as he wept and he fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply. He wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. You see, the Bible will always lead you to Jesus. It's the story about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. And if you reject the teaching of the Bible, if you find inaccuracy in the Bible and you think that that's going to discredit the whole thing, you throw it all out, Jesus goes with it. It's a sad story. What you believe about the Bible is so vitally important. Verse 16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God, is useful for so many things, instruction, teaching, correction, training, equipping. And every one of us has to decide whether or not we will accept that this book is the inspired Word of God and declare like Billy Graham did, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I am saying by faith I believe today it is the Word of God. You know, the, the word translated here, inspired by God, literally means God breathed. And some of your translations may say that, God breathed. It's taking the Greek word for God, theos, and combining it with the word for breath or pneuma. And breath means life in this culture. It is the essence of this eternal being. To say that the Bible is God breathed is to say that it contains the very life of God the very expression, the very heart of God. And what it ultimately boils down to for you and for me is this. It is an issue of faith because everybody believes something about the Bible. Everybody has a position about the Bible. They will either accept it as God's word, reject it as a myth, or just be agnostic towards it, thinking, I don't know if it's true or not. But everybody has a belief about the Bible. If you think the Bible is a myth, you've stated a faith position. And I would contend with that by saying to a skeptic that said, the Bible is a myth, I would say, prove it. I want you to prove that. You're asking me to prove that it is, and I want you to ask, I want you to give me the facts that prove that it is a myth. Why, shouldn't the, why should the burden of proof always be upon us? You know what I mean? Let's not use straw man arguments that have emotional appeal but don't have any substance. Can we just look at the evidence? But at the end of the day, after the examination of the evidence, it comes down to an issue of faith. What are you going to believe? I know 
that an open-minded search for truth will reveal this. The Bible is true. Jesus did come. Jesus did rise from the dead. Heaven and hell are very real places. And so what will you believe? Is the Bible reliable? It's more than reliable. It's a supernatural book given to us by a supernatural God who has supernaturally preserved it through the centuries and it is supernaturally received. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will guide us into what? All truth. When we're open to the words of the Bible, we're open to the person, the very breath of God, the very spirit of God. And as we read, I there's so many times when I come to the Bible and I'm, I'm reading the Bible and I'm looking at the Scripture, I'm, I'm looking at the words. I'm, there's, there's something, there's a spiritual dynamic that just, it's not an emotion, it's, it's not a feeling, it's, there's just the reality of the presence of God teaching. <laughs> it's as if the light bulb just, comes on. You have those light bulb moments when you're reading the Word of God, don't you? <laughs> it's just like, oh, I spiritually understand this. Not just do I cognitively, intellectually. There is, it got me this time. It penetrated. I get it. I see what God is saying to me. We just have to reject these modern attempts to discredit the precious Breath of God. You don't get to define truth. <laughs> Nobody does. Truth is truth. What we do have is a decision. And that is, am I going to believe what is the evidence leading me to believe? Am I going to believe what the evidence exposes is what is true? What I sense in my heart, what is true? Or am I not wanting to take the step that what that will mean in my life? And I'm just going to set that over there and I'm going to keep living the way I want to live. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father.